Turn up the radio and sing along. It's time for another great song. This is the Great Song Podcast. Seasons greetings, everybody, and welcome once again to another episode of the Great Song Podcast. I'm Rob Alley. I'm J.P. Mosier. And we're out here in Music City one more time, giving you the greatest songs of modern music. We're going to break down why they're great, why we think they're great, and why you should too. Like we always say, it ain't great till we say it's great. How you doing today, man? Fantastic. Outstanding. Uh, we're here in beautiful Music City, uh, Red Bank, Tennessee. No, uh, Nashville adjacent today. Again, uh, recording a whole crop of great new songs for you. So we're excited. We're gonna be uh, we're gonna be set to the first of the year at least. So we're gonna be going strong through 2018, coming at you with brand new episodes of the Great Song Podcast. If you're listening on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, Google Play, Zarnak. Uh, I made that last one up. <laughs> However you're listening today, we really appreciate it. Thanks for uh, thanks for sharing, subscribing, commenting, all those things. Uh, we appreciate every appreciate. appreciate. We appreciate every single uh, every single listen, every single like, every single follow on Twitter at Great Song Pod. Um, but enough about all that. Enough promotion. Let's jump in. Let's get into it. Uh, so we noticed a pattern in the first uh, you know few songs that we did. Uh, and that pattern was they were all old, <laughs> all classic rock. Um, so we thought, why don't we do or some just songs? Old, yeah, or just old. I mean, uh, you know. So why don't we just do? Why don't we do something that's maybe not at least twenty years old? Um, so uh, this is kind of the first uh, first new song that we've done. As this as, is for as, all you junior high kids out there. That's right. All you eighth graders are going to love today's episode. We're breaking down "Changing" by John Mayer. Off his latest album, The Search for Everything, actually came out this year. This song is not yet a year old, um, so so we have to drop this episode in 2017. That's right. So fr- frankly, it makes it harder on us. The older a song gets, the more info there is to find on it. The more stories there are, the more you know you can like you can find anything you want to on Google. This one not as much because there's it's still new and it's not legendary yet. It's not even the biggest. Song off the album. Yeah, it wasn't a single. It's, you know, whatever. But it um, is a great song. It is a great song. it's on the Great Song Podcast. Because we said it is. <clears throat> uh, so this was released in uh, 2017. Uh, like I said on the album, The Search for Everything, uh, which reached number one on the Billboard Rock Albums chart. Uh, the song Changing uh, released uh, reached number nine on the Billboard Rock Digital Song Sales chart. Uh I wanted to get your opinion on the way that this album was released. I know we're not talking about albums necessarily, but we always do. Um, It was released in three waves uh, of, I believe, four songs each. Four songs. Uh, So, and this was part of wave one, which actually came out. The lead single for wave one came out in late 2016, but wave one came out, I think, in February of 2017. Um, And so it would be... Four songs released, and then uh, a month later, I think, the second wave of songs, and then a month later, the third wave of songs. Um, did you participate in any of that? Did you uh, did I, you take the album in that way? No, I didn't. I waited till the whole thing came out. You're not a digital guy anyway. Yeah, so I'm not, I couldn't pull it up on my flip phone it, and listen to it. So I just uh, I just waited till the whole actual CD came out. Yeah, and got and got the CD that way. I heard the singles on the radio and on Letterman, different things like or not Letterman, the Tonight Show. <laughs> Letterman. I was watching on Carson. Uh, I was, that's right, Johnny Carson. Uh, and uh, I remember tonight. when when Sullivan had him on. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Uh, on the night show, I saw him do his uh, his single. I saw Love on the Weekend. So. Okay. 
Uh, did you love it on the weekend? Uh, hey. hey. Uh, I've, I've stated that I'm also an album guy. I prefer to hear an album uh, in its uh, entirety all at once. Uh, I did, though, at least listen to once... I think once the first two waves had come out, I did listen to those together. It was enough for me to go, that's eight songs. I, I can call that. And then just hope that the last four didn't ruin it. Um, but definitely once I, uh, once the third wave came out, I put them all together in a playlist and, and played them all three because I wanted to hear how they felt all together. I also wanted to know, you know, I tweeted John Mayer about this. He didn't at me back. So yet, whatever, we're on the outs. We're kind of on the outs. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was a few months ago. He could still get to it, I guess. Uh, I, I wanted to know if once the album came out, if sequentially the album should have been listened to differently than the way than, than the, the order. That, yeah, than the way they came out in the waves. Uh, it seems to flow pretty well. So I, you know, whatever. I was just curious. But uh, so, John, if you're out there, um, first of all, hope you're doing well. You seem to be taking care of yourself better these days. So it's good to know. Uh, but also. Just let me know, you know, hit, hit your boy up on Twitter. Um, so, but I kind of think he's not the first one to do that, but he was the first one that I kind of noticed doing that. But I think he took some inspiration from maybe, I, I think he referenced Drake and Rihanna that maybe they had done some sort of um, segmented album releases. Do you think that's going to be a thing that picks up? I don't know. I got, he had pretty good success with it. And uh, yeah, I, I think it's workable. It's enough to let you go, it's enough to like digest and still want more in a month. You know what I mean? It's not, here's 12 songs and in a month I'm going to release 12 more songs. Sure, it's not a it's, double live album. Exactly. It's a, it's like, okay, here's three EPs, you know, released in close proximity to each other and they're kind of manageable, but they leave you still anticipating more. I could see that happening. What I can't see happening is what um, Ty Tribbett recently did with his album that just came out. It just it just came out like maybe three weeks ago, something like okay. that. But it started releasing months and months ago. And he released one track at a time every three weeks until basically whole the whole album, album was, was out. And I thought that was misery. I was like, that's too much. You're, you're doing... Did he do his single first? Was that like the hit he, first okay, so and yeah, get progressively worse? The, Sorry, I don't mean well, to say the, that. Well, the lead single came out literally like a year and a half ago. It came out so long ago. Then there was a big space of nothing. Has he and been touring he, during he started, this and doing any of this stuff? Honestly, I don't know. Um, but then it, was, then it started trickling in one song at a time. I was like, bro... You're losing me. I'm not listening to any of this. <laughs> you know, like I was almost mad by the time the album came out. Like finally, uh, but I do think I do think more people will. I think it worked well for John Mayer. I think more people will probably start to do something like this. Um, even my hero that we I think we mention every podcast, Weird Al Yankovic, has talked about that he is probably he just got out of his first record contract. His first record contract lasted Whoa. 30 years. Wow. Um, it just kept getting extended and extending it and extended. And um, and now he is he is without a contract and is planning to keep it that way. And he said he will probably not do traditional albums anymore. Okay. In the in for a parody artist, a comedy artist, it's better to be for him to be able to release two or three songs that are that the ideas are, you know, fresh in the age of YouTube. Right. If something, Instant. if the president does something hilarious, then tomorrow there's a music video about it on YouTube from some, you know, uh, from some uh, YouTuber. And so he's like, why should I have to wait 15 months to be able to get that to the people 
you know, when I can do it now. And so he's even, even he's talking about releasing smaller bits of music, you know, more frequently. Well, let's dive into this smaller bit of music. Let's Let's play a sampling. Let's hear some changing. All right, here we go. Let's listen to changing. Just kidding. That was, oh, was that my old band? Oh, I'm so sorry. That was our song called Changing by 10 Days After. Trademark. Copyright 2000 something. Uh, not available on iTunes, so don't even bother. I know you're scrambling right now trying to, what was that? You're trying to like, just blew your mind. I'm sorry. Hang on. I'll get the real one. Hang on. I am not done changing out on the run changing I may be old and I may be young, but I am not done changing. I met me someone changing. We had some fun changing. Sometimes I wonder if she'll be the one when I am done changing. Some of us stopped running Some of us went home Some of us don't got one So we'll build one of our own Friends behind their fences Looking at me strange Wondering when I'm gonna come to my senses But I'm still Changing and I can't change my way. I see the sky. There it was. That's sorry about that. That was the real that's changing by John Mayer from the album The Search for Everything. Uh, why don't you get us started on this, JK? Yeah, he uh, actually wrote the uh, melody to this 30-second jingle in 2014. Um, he wrote it and he thought, how do I turn this little jingle into a song? Um, yeah, it's, he said uh, he, he took a long time to record this album. Um, he basically set up camp at Columbia Studios in Hollywood and um, said that he wanted an album that felt like a big sweeping production. He referenced uh, like Fleetwood Mac's rumors that just felt like there was a lot put into this. Um, and so he recorded over a period of several months, but he said he was sitting in the, in a section of the studio and this kind of just came out. And, um, and he said that it was so like, literally he just kind of came out with the first verse all at once and it felt like its own thing. And he almost had trouble like uh, expanding it into a full song because the thought felt complete in this 30 second, you know, um, thing. And so he had to put some more, put some real work into it, I think, to be able to expand it into a full song. Yeah. He calls it the spiritual centerpiece of his album. I I agree with that. I I think, yeah, I think it's probably the most simple song on the whole album. too. It's, it's very simplistic with the exception of the, I, I like the way the guitar solo enters and it's Super blistering and attack, attackful. A lot of yeah. attack into it. attack. There's a lot of attack in it as he comes in. He's like, "Welcome, 
guitar solo. Um, something I've thought about the song as I listen to it too. I feel like there should be a choir singing the changing line. Oh. Like he should do the I am not done and then this big huge choir like changing. But <laughs> I guess he doesn't. Maybe for an awards show. Yeah. If he did it on like the VMAs. John Mayer with Brooklyn Tabernacle <laughs> Choir. Or something like that. Um, so that's my thoughts on the on this the song. I definitely agree with the thought that this is the uh, sort of spiritual centerpiece of the album. It feels like the whole album, uh, or most of the album anyway, a lot of it is about like heartbreak and you know whatever. But but I feel like overall sort of the arc of the album is about uh, maturing and coming to grips with yourself. Um, which I mean, he's like forty, so maybe it's time. It's about time to do some I change. Mean, yeah, he had we, some. Uh, he had some uh, you know, some goof around years. He's he's had some really good albums, so it's tough to decide yeah. which which John Mayer tune we were going to do. But we had to yep. do, we wanted to do something newer. Um, but for the for the case of the John Mayer history, I would love to just touch on highlights of each album. Um, sure. So we start with uh, Room for Squares in two thousand one. Do you yep. have a favorite moment on there or something? I want to say like? I want to say first of all. That when John Mayer first appeared on the scene, I hated his guts. Uh, I did not want to listen to his music. I did not want to enjoy it um, because I felt that now this is probably delusional on my part, but I felt that he and I were very similar um, in our style. And I was like, why him and not me? You know, he's just a few years older than me. And I was like, why this guy and not me? Uh, especially on that first album that was kind of acoustic driven. And I was doing an acoustic band at the time. And, um, so I was like, bro, get out of here. So literally, I didn't listen to this album for a long time. Um, but now it is probably in my top 10 favorite albums of all time. Really? The, no Room for Squares. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I can, I can listen to it at any time. I don't skip anything on it. Um, you know, I, I don't, there's not a bad song on that album, if you ask me. Um, that being said, my favorite song on that album is uh, My Stupid Mouth. Really? I, I think that song is really clever. It's a funny idea. I think it's very honest too. Like it's just sort of like he's always had a knack for sort of being self-reflective in a way that he doesn't care if he paints himself in a good light, you know? So I, I just always thought that's great. Uh, my favorite riff is neon. Yeah, mine too. I had uh, that down as favorite guitar part, which it. I believe is in, I got a buddy who C? showed me how to play. It's in drop C. It's in drop. It's in weird C tuning. Yeah. What in the world? Very strange, uh, but beautiful riff. And, but my favorite music on that album, just in general, musical feel comes from City Love. Okay. I love the the lush strings, the chord structures uh-huh. in City Love is just so good. Well, what, how about you? It's funny we didn't even mention the hits, which are yeah. not my favorites either. The hits off that album, um, Why Georgia and Your Body is a Wonderland, did not make my, my list. Favorite guitar parts the same with Neon. My favorite song is Back to You. I love Back to You. Yeah. Um, we've covered it a time or two, but it's, uh, it's, I love the, the melody of the guitar parts that are different yep. all the way throughout the side. That's my favorite song on that one. Um, Heavier Things. Um, I'll kick off Heavier Things since you kicked off yep. the other one. That's the second album. Came out in 2003. My favorite part um, my, is the intro on Something's Missing. I love it. Yeah. Guitar part, which is funny that there's no real guitar solo per se in that song, but I love the intro on that. Yeah. And the solo on Come Back to Bed are my favorite. Yep. I've part. got, that's funny. I've got the same two. Uh, my favorite song is Something's Missing. That first, that first opening chord coming in on, on beat two is yes. just beautiful. It's yep. really colorful chord. Uh, and then I Come Back to Bed, especially actually as a live, seeing him do that one live is really, really, really nice. Uh, I haven't seen him live in person, but live on video. I've seen him three times, and each time is better than the last. <laughs> With the exception of the middle one, which was worse than the prayer. <laughs> I saw him on the uh, Born and Raised tour, and it was 
just not John Mayer. Was he wearing a straw hat? He was. He was wearing a hat. It was just, it was weird. It was uh, him and Philip Phillips. Philip Phillips I actually thought did better than John Mayer at the John Mayer show. Wow. Yeah. Ouch. I drove to St. Louis because that was as close as he came on that tour. No I kidding. went there to go see John Mayer because it had been years since I'd seen him. And I took my wife for the first time and it was kind of disappointing. Ouch. Sorry, John. We love you now. You redeemed yourself on the last uh, <laughs> He came last back. Week. My favorite John Mayer lyric actually belongs on something something's missing. The second uh, the second verse of something's missing uh is uh it says when autumn comes it doesn't ask it just walks in where it left you last. You never know when it starts until there's fog inside the glass around your summer heart. That's a freaking amazing yeah, lyric. Good. Like who, you know, who even thinks of that? That's my favorite lyric of his by far. Yeah, the hit on that was "Daughters," which is probably my least favorite John Mayer song <laughs> yeah. of all time. Is it because it got overplayed, or you just don't like yes, it? Yes, that, and it's just it's not it's not my jam. So everybody's got their jams. It's not my all right, jam. how about Continuum? I, for me, Continuum and John Mayer Trio are kind of lumped in together. Because of their, you know, same era, a lot of the same songs crossover. I t- I was seeing if I needed to put one on one and one on the other, so I'll just put my two favorite. Vultures is my is my song. I Agreed. Love, that's probably that's in my top three Mayer songs ever. I love Vultures, and I like Slow Dancing in a Burning Room. Yeah. Um. So those are my my highlights on that one. You. Uh, Vultures also my favorite yeah. my favorite everything song about that. Vultures. Yeah. <clears throat> so groovy, yeah. feels so good. You can't help but nod your head. The bass line is so funky. The guitar is so sparse and just just nice. Uh, my favorite lyric is actually uh, on the um, on the trio album on uh, "Who Did You Think I Was?" The okay. opener uh, when he says, uh, "Here's a line that you won't understand. I'm half of a boy, but I'm twice the man." Uh-huh. I, it's like okay, like it is kind of a nonsense lyric that doesn't really mean anything, but he acknowledges like beforehand, like I'm gonna gonna say something this that doesn't really doesn't say anything. Yeah. It kind of makes sense, but it kind of just doesn't. It's just here. It's awesome. Um, hits on that one were "Gravity" and "Waiting on the World to Change." Gravity is so slow. Very dude, it's so slow. slow. But gravity is one of those songs that like all my um, like college age musician friends who are like, you know, they just sit and practice music and they just want to like be the, like gravity. They basically have an altar set up in their <laughs> little college apartments where they burn incense to that song yeah. daily. <laughs> um, Battle Studies was next, came out in 2009. Love that album. I love mm. that album too. That's my favorite Mayer album. It's a very sonically dark album mm-hmm. like it, it feels like the whole album kind of has a light blanket over the top of it not very bright it's very just a nice a, a good dark mix um favorite song on that edge of desire is no doubt my favorite song on that favorite guitar part i'm a delay guy so i love heartbreak warfare <laughs> yeah so that's a great riff heartbreak warfare my, my favorite on that album also it's kind of cheesy but assassin yeah i, I love assassin um, the story is just kind of cheesy, but whatever. I like it. It's uh, fun. The hit off that one was who says that's <clears> the one that went the, the highest on the, on that album. Who says you can't get stoned? Yeah. Um, yeah. We already did a Marley people, episode. So. Yeah. I was going to say people love, people love hearing about, uh, you know, smoking the weed. Um, next album, born and raised this one in paradise Valley, my two least favorite mayor projects. Um, a lot of people, I have a friend named Val that just loves this one and paradise Valley. That's like her mayor years and her favorites. Not my favorite, but, uh, I guess if I had to pick a favorite off born and raised, it would probably be queen of California. Um, or maybe something like Olivia, but neither of which I'm going to dive wholeheartedly into and (laughs) be passionately behind the hit off that one was shadow days. Um, I literally, I, I completely checked out for those two albums. I was not here for either of those. Um, I don't know what happened. <laughs> I, 
I think I got so sick of everybody feeling like they were doing a country record. Like there for a minute, it felt like the only way to make money in the music industry for about a four year period was to make a country album. And so everybody was doing it literally like people who had no business singing like rootsy, you know, country infused albums were doing it. And I just got so sick of it that I think I didn't give him any credit for doing it. I was like, he's just another, you know what I mean? He's just trying to cash in. Rock and roll's not cool anymore. So now whatever he's out living in Montana and making, uh, you know, trying to be James Taylor. But uh, so I literally, I know nothing about either one of those albums. You want to take a, you mentioned Montana, you know, you lose in Mon- you know, I did some Montana homework. Did you, you want to hear now? some random Montana facts? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. So the largest snowflake ever recorded was, was in Montana, 15 <laughs> inches in diameter. Holy smoke. 15 inch snowflake. Yay, Montana. Wow. There's also more cattle than people in Montana. <laughs> uh, most dramatic temperature change ever recorded in 1972 one day it went from negative 59 degrees Fahrenheit to 42 degrees Fahrenheit. Whoa. One day in 72. Go get a Montana. Holy cow. That's like almost 80 degree swing. It's also, over 80 degree swing. It's also the fourth largest state in the United States. You can huh. fit Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, New York, Pennsylvania, and the District of Columbia inside of Montana. <laughs> Do you know the, the four largest states? Do you know the other three? Uh, Texas, Alaska... Uh, California, yeah. Alaska's number one, and then and Montana. Then, Interesting. Then I mean, I guess so. If Texas you visualize Trump. it, it makes sense. Um, so that was a Montana sidebar. Yeah, of course you went and did Montana homework. That's not amazing. Joe Montana. Not Joe Montana. Uh, I was trying to think of a good Joe Montana joke to throw in. I couldn't do it. I was trying to bring in Dwight Clark. I just couldn't. I didn't. Jerry have Rice, it. I don't know. Steve Young, Steve Young. Who knows? Um, okay, Paradise Valley, 2013. Um, I the only hit the hit on there was Paper Doll, which is the response to Taylor Swift's Dear John song. But I don't really. I didn't find anything on Paradise Valley yeah. that I liked. No clue. Nothing. Take me down to the Paradise Valley. Yeah, where the grass is green and the girls. And you're Rob Alley. Rhyme with Valley, and I'm uh, Rob Alley. There you go. Um, and then here we back on to uh, this 2017 to search for everything. And I guess we have to put Changing is the one we like, because that's the one that we're talking about. I mean, it's honestly, I don't think it's my favorite song on the album, but... What's your favorite on the album, you think? Um, my favorite song, just pure song on the album is Roll It On Home. Okay. I think that's just, and it's funny because it's the most country song on the whole yeah. album. So I was like, I just crapped on you the just, two country uh, albums. and uh, yourself. Well. Yeah. Um, which makes me think I could maybe go back and listen to them and enjoy them now. But I think Roll It On Home is an amazingly well-constructed song. It's, and I, it's I like cute. In the Blood, but it's funny that we're doing Changing. So in the here, Blood, here. yeah. I, um, also, I think just the best, I think the best idea on the search for everything is never on the day you leave. I think that's a really, um, I don't know that it's clever. It's just something that most people would not think of, that concept, like um, whatever. And Still Feel Like Your Man just grooves all day. Like, just, yeah, that's, that's. I want that groove to never end. Yeah, that, I put that note down here too. It's a, I, I really, I really have enjoyed that album as a whole. I, I don't have honestly the one song on that album that I until I had heard it several times was tempted to skip was changing. Oh yeah, At the beginning of it is so simple it's, it's, and the, and and it it didn't grab me right away. And I've already said on, on the podcast that uh, the last thing I listen to in a song is the lyric. If I'm listening to pop music. I need to get hooked by the music first and it takes a minute. There's nothing really special until the guitar solo hits musically. Um, 
And so uh, it's, it's really the lyric that carries the song and it's quite good. I just wasn't paying attention to it. And so I would hear the simple piano thing and I would go, ah, oh, this one's kind of boring. Right. And then I get halfway through it and I'm like, oh, but that guitar solo, I forgot. We, we talked a lot, play a little bit of the solo. <laughs> so those of y'all that haven't heard this solo. Yeah. So let's take a listen. <laughs> So good. So good. That is, I mean, if you want to listen for an example of a tasty but amazing guitar solo, uh, that is how you do it, ladies and gentlemen. Like, study that one. Learn that one instead of learning Ingve Malmsteen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let Ingve rest for a minute. Let Dream Theater, let John Petrucci sit down for a minute and let John Mayer... Just get that in you, and you'll do some amazing things. Instead of kicking your guitar pick into the crowd <laughs> and spinning your guitar around, just hold it and play that. <laughs> uh, just play something tasteful. It's got, it's got a little bit of everything. It's got, it's very melodic all the way through. You can sing it back. Uh, it's got a, just a little bit of flash, like uh, a couple of flashy bluesy licks. It's got a. It's even for 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 the for the music nerds. Uh, it's got a, uh, uh, um, a Lydian lick in it where you, where you incorporate the sharp four, where you incorporate a raised four in a major scale. Uh, the little Lydian move in there, uh, a few bars into it is so good. It gets me every time. I just love it. And I like the way Steve Jordan drives him through it. I feel like yeah. he pushes his solo a little bit. So good call. Might be a little, uh, let's segue into meet the band. Hey, let's meet the band. It's time to meet the band. All right, so on guitar and vocals, obviously we talked a little bit about John Mayer, so we'll talk more about him in the future. But on drums, uh, the aforementioned Steve Jordan, um, drums and percussion on this, uh, Saturday Night Live and David Letterman Band. Yeah. played in the Saturday Night Live and David Letterman Band. Um, Also in the Blues Brothers Band. Played with Keith Richards, Cat Stevens, Booker T, and the MGs. Got anything okay. on Steve Jordan? No, I I just love him, dude. He's so good. Yeah, um, I saw an interview with with John Mayer on a on on one of his live concerts, and he's like, Steve could actually carry a large portion of the whole thing by himself. I bet, um, and just and just leave him up there um, on bass. P- Pino Palandino. Yeah, um, he's Welsh. For those of you that didn't know that, I don't know how many Welsh people we know <laughs> around the world. Best known for playing with the Who. Um, I didn't realize this when I was looking up the gear he uses. He, he used to use a lot of fretless basses, but he uses bass chorus on most of his stuff. I don't really, really hear... Just to I, kind of thicken up his sound. Yeah, I don't hear a lot of people advertising the fact that they use a lot of chorus <laughs> yeah. on the bass. Um, yeah. I, I never really... But it's, de- it's good, especially when they're doing a lot of trio stuff. Yeah. You know, you do what you can to Thickens expand your up. sound. Yeah. So guitarists end up using a lot of reverb and that kind of stuff to give it some wash. So, so it fills up. Uh, on keys, Larry Goldings um, played with NDRE, Tracy Chapman, Beck. He actually got a Grammy nomination with um, a group called the Trio Beyond, which is him, 
John Schofield and Jack Dejanet. Ooh. Um, so it's really good. They got the nomination, but they didn't win. So I was like, well, how did they not win? It was for Best Instrumental um, Album on the uh, for a Grammy, and he lost to Chick Corea in the oh, Ultimate Adventure well, that year. So I was like, of I mean, course. Who of course among us hasn't lost to Chick Corea? To Chick Corea and something. I know, right? And then I started looking. Chick Corea's run a ton of stuff. Oh, my gosh. Gosh, he, he's, he's got to be up there. Um, other musicians on the album, but not necessarily on this song. Cheryl Crow sings on In the Blood. Aaron Sterling plays drums on this album, just not on this song. And James Fauntleroy plays keys, and he has written a lot of stuff for Beyonce and Kendrick Lamar. Um, on the Meet the Band section, I actually went a little bit deeper on this because that's kind of a tight, small band. So I looked up a little bit on the producer, produced by a guy named Chad Vranskoviak, who, aside from that fact that he produced this album, wouldn't be too much, except for the fact that he was John Mayer's roommate for a couple of years. No kidding. This. So him and Johnny were big buddies. So him huh. and the producer. That's um, awesome. It was mixed by a guy named Manny Merrikin, who yeah. has eight Grammys. Yep. Um, he's won a Grammy with Whitney Houston, Pink, Tupac, Shakira, Maroon 5, and Seal. Shout out to Waves Plugins for all the producers out there. He's got a signature series of uh, Waves uh, producer plugins that are sweet. Really? Yeah. Did you hear how he got um, his first his first mixing job? No. He uh, There was a producer that asked him to just do a rough mix on this album, and he really liked it, and he ended up mixing Tony Braxton's first album. No kidding. So, yeah. Just another sad love song. Hey, like Tony Braxton. Thanks for coming. Look crazy. <laughs> and she hung around for a little bit. <laughs> Most just, of the time, they just she, come all right. Here. To, go, you, get, get oh, out of here, Tony. Overstage your welcome, right Tony. Every uh, time, come on. Mastering it was mastered by a guy named Greg Colby, who his first album he mastered was Yoko Ono's Plastic Ono Band. Oh. Gross. So yeah, I'm just uh, gonna say it. She broke up the Beatles. <laughs> he also mastered Stevie Wonder's Inner Visions, not to be confused with Inversions. Inversions. Also uh, mastered for Kansas, Bon Jovi, Ramones, Blondie, 38 Special, and David Bowie. Mastering so. is one of those things, if you're listening, you may not even, if you're the average listener, you've probably never even thought about mastering. It's one of those things that kind of feels like it's done with potions and cauldrons and whatever. It's the it's the final stage of an album's preparation musically. So you've got the recording phase, the writing phase, the recording phase, the post-production slash mixing phase where you get everything balanced and get all the effects added that you need and, and do all the equalization and all that stuff. Mastering is the last phase of, of an album's uh, production wherein part of the job of mastering now uh, is to get this, get the album as loud as possible. Um, and there's been a big shift in the last few years of what we've gone through, what they call the loudness wars. If you listen to an album from 40 years ago that hasn't been digitally remastered, if you listen to it in its original form, it will probably have some wild swings in dynamics. Parts of it you'll have to turn up. Parts of it you'll have to turn down. Uh, but with the advent of uh, digital software and and more intense um, limiters and compressors, they were able to take those peaks and valleys and squash them together even more so that the low volume sections of an album and the high volume sections of an album, neither one were quite as low or high and the, and the dynamic range was smaller overall. And then they take the whole thing and push it up as loud as possible. And for a while it was the goal of mastering engineers the world over to just slam an album as loud as possible without it peaking or making, making noise. Um, and inevitably the, the pendulum has swung because people started going, man, I really miss the dynamics of these old albums. Um, 
I personally, I, I, I don't. I hate it when Me I'm neither. having to turn an album up and down. Yeah, and all that it's stuff. the same thing when you're changing televisions. I hate when one sta- one channel is yeah. so much louder than the other. <laughs> like I'm watching a, a, a baseball game and I turn it over and I stop on the news and they're like, <laughs> it's going to rain tomorrow. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my goodness. So yeah, I, I have much respect for people that are good mixing, that have good mixing and mastering capabilities. Yeah, so. mastering is one of those things I have no clue. I understand the goal. But the process is still a mystery to most people. It's a, it's a it's an art of, for the most part, very small refinements. Uh, I have a friend who is a world class mastering engineer, and I have no clue what he does. I have, <laughs> I have absolutely no idea what what to listen for when you're mastering an album and, and how to make it work. So good job to Greg Colby for good finding, job, Greg. Because the album way sounds, to do that sounds great, man. For him and other people, um, that's what I've got on Meet the Band. Um, hey, we met the band. We met the band. I mean, we didn't. But quite a good band. I'd like to. Um, I got some other random John Mayer facts. You got anything you want to ask? Uh, I, I just thought of a question that I'd like to ask. Sure, throw it out. Because because um, Steve Jordan and Pino Palladino have become sort of synonymous with John Mayer. Like sure. They're his most well-known backing band. Backing They've band. made some of his best music with him. If, uh, if you could hook up with another, if you were on guitar, okay. I don't care if you want to sing or not, but if you're on sure. guitar, if you could hook up with a bass and drums duo uh to to jam with to start a band with who would you want to do alive or dead okay i have to think of stylistically what kind of band it would be first okay. to pick my drummer um if if it was like my i'd probably i'll just pick my favorites okay. um portnoy would be my drummer okay mike portnoy from dream theater would be my drummer on bass since i'm not a vocalist i would want a bass player that could sing so you're and gonna go so McCartney? I would, I would go Sting. St- oh, so mm. I would play guitar oh, yeah. in the back, and <laughs> they would be the four. I would be. It would be the complete backwards of this, where the front person would actually be the bass player. Okay. And and I would play guitar with Sting <laughs> and Portnoy, which the dynamic of that band, I have yeah, no clue what style we would do. I was actually thinking more of like a pre-existing duo, like they come together. As oh, a they're a pair. Yeah, and you so pick like them together. because you think you think okay. Jordan and Palladino together. Gotcha. So it would be mean? like so, Portnoy, my uh, John, my young. And John, my young. Okay, yeah, or, I'm fine with that. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not gonna not gonna kick them out. Um, let's think here. I think of like... Give me your... Who would be yours? Well, I my first instinct, and this is probably just because I'm aware, I, will, I was aware of them as a pairing first, would be like Double Trouble. Okay. Um, well, you know, you uh, well, that, Stevie Ray Vaughan's yeah, backing Ray. band from back in the day. Uh, or even uh, Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker. Okay. Cream. Cream. Yeah, um, that's a good one. You know, just some of these guys that are like, you always see them together. We're not, whether or not they're like necessarily in bands together, but like Nathan East and any drummer, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. but like Nathan East and Phil Collins or, <laughs> oh yeah. Cause you know they really I mean? did play together. Yeah. I mean, they, they played they together They backed a lot. for Clapton on yeah. some of those videos, man. Yeah. That's a good one right yeah. there. I like that. That would be, you could not go wrong yeah, with Nathan East and Phil Collins. You're, you're, you're set. Yeah, yeah. You're set. I think that one's settled for okay. me. That's a good one. Yeah. That, that one wins. <clears throat> I'd say that one trumps. Uh, I don't have, I have, I have one John Mayer fact, Okay. so I'll give my one. Roll it. Um, now this is, you gotta, I, I, I can only put so much research into this. Okay. So I can't verify this, but this is according to the internet that, uh, John Mayer has a neurological condition called synesthesia. Sure. Uh, did you see this? Yeah. That, um, which causes him to see and interpret music as colors. So he'll hear a uh, a rock song and say that that feels brown um or you know whatever he's listening to there's a color to describe it um and there are a couple other people of note who um have the same condition 
And unfortunately I forgot to write them down, but I thought, Oh, that was interesting. And then I, I guess I just didn't put it down. Well, we've kind of touched on the colors of songs in previous podcasts. We're like, that song feels green. Yeah. That song feels blue. Maybe you have a slight hint of that. I think, (laughs) I don't know. I think probably what happens for me is like, I see an album cover cover, and somebody did a great, yeah, somebody did a great job of pairing a color with it. That's what I think. I don't think I have any of this synesthesia. I wonder what it's like though. What do you think? You know, I bet it's, I bet it gives you a sort of a depth of listening experience that is interesting as long as it's pleasant. I, you know, as long as it's like, I wonder if, if a song, if, if something is awful, if something sounds terrible, I feel like that's automatically Brown. If the color's ugly, right? Yeah. Like that. That song looks like doo-doo. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Well, we can't knock his taste. He has dated some top notch (laughs) candidates. Jennifer Aniston, Jennifer Love Hewitt, Jessica Simpson, he likes the Cameron J's. Diaz, Taylor Swift, and Kim Kardashian. That's <laughs> who was a, that? Wait, who, before Kim, who was that? Uh, Taylor Swift. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's an uh, there's an underground uh, a groundswell to get us to do some uh, cover some Taylor Swift songs. So I'm trying I to bring Jesse around and fighting as hard as I can to not do that. <laughs> uh, and Minka Kelly too. Um, after high school, he worked at a gas station for seven dollars an hour and saved up his money to buy a guitar. All right. It's a pretty neat little thing. And he's fluent in Japanese. You ever heard him speak Japanese? No kidding. No, I haven't. We'll have to look up a clip. Interesting. And, and show, show him speaking Japanese. Um, other than that, the stuff that he did with Bob Weir and, and formed the Dead and Company. Yeah, I, Dead I never, and Company, if you don't know, uh, and, and honestly, why would you? Uh, most of us probably would not even be aware of their existence were it not for John Mayer being part of it. But the Grateful Dead um, lost its original leader some years back, Jerry Garcia and, uh, the surviving members have always continued to tour, uh, since then. And just, you know, having, um, you know, other people carry those vocals and guitar parts. Um, but they recently formed a sort of an unofficial official, like rebranding almost dead and company. It's like the grateful dead and friends. And John Mayer is part of that traveling with them. And, um, I, the grateful dead, like they have a huge following. They literally, it's like that sort of um, Jimmy Buffett thing where you just have people that just follow you from show to show and they live in an RV and what they do is they just go listen to the Grateful Dead every day. And uh, it's weird, man. Like, but they have a huge following. They've never still sold bumper a, stickers all over the place. All, yeah, all over the place. And they still, you know, uh, like they're not selling tons of records but man alive, do they sell concert tickets? Like they're selling out football stadiums. Still the grateful dead in 2017 is selling out football stadiums. And I think it's a genius move to hook up with another big name, artist. hook up with somebody yeah. like John Mayer to give you an extra push from that generation that ensures that from now until he's 80, you know, if he keeps doing that, they're going to have an audience of people who were not necessarily, uh, fans of the Grateful Dead, but now are because they linked in when you added John Mayer to the lineup. Like, uh, very smart. I don't know if that was a marketing decision or a they just got together and you know mutual appreciation society and said, "Man, let's just you know let's just do this." But very. Uh, we'll touch very in smart. on other uh, Grateful Dead connections throughout the podcast. We definitely will. Um, I want to say one other one other. Um, I don't know if this is a fact, just a note, but something that John Mayer did during the recording process of this album, which I thought was very cool. I hope catches on. I've seen one other person do it, um, since then. Um, and that was, uh, Lincoln Brewster. Um, while John Mayer was in the studio recording this album, 
he went on Facebook Live and, while he was recording one of the guitar solos and trying and and trying to you know feel it out and and so he's on Facebook Live and and interacting directly with Facebook while he's legit trying to lay down this solo. Now I don't I don't think it wasn't for this song. I can't remember. It was for one of the funkier songs. Um but um but I thought it was a very cool idea to give you some inside baseball on on you know this studio moment. And I, I don't think what he played on that was the final, you know, what actually ended up on the thing. He was kind of feeling it out and trying to get it there. But but how cool would it be if that moment you know, was on Facebook live and you, and you saw it and you could go back and watch it and listen to it and go, you know, it's almost like I saw you were him there. Lay that down. Yeah. Like exactly. I saw him lay that down. It like I was, the, I, I was, was in the room, you know, a uh, very cool moment. And Lincoln Brewster, uh, a month or two ago recently did the same thing on a, on a single that, that he, cool. he put out for his new album. Um, and I thought that's a, that's a great use of that technology. Um, to be able to really give you an inside look at a moment that could then later you could have forever, uh, you know. I wonder if that would be one of his favorite moments of the recording process of this was him doing that. Because the reason I ask, I, I heard an interview with him about what his favorite song is that he's ever done. And he said it was the, the I don't know if it's three times five or three by five. Three by five, yeah. Um, yeah. Off Room for Squares is his favorite. Really? Um, so And to me, that's not even, that's forgotten about. Oh, I now see, I love that song. See, that's one that I don't even. I literally, oh gosh, this sounds so fangirl, but every time, I don't mean to be offensive to any actual fangirls, um, but like for some reason now, anytime I see something that is uh, profoundly beautiful, that I'm experiencing myself, that song starts playing in my head. Whoa! Uh, and crazy. so I, you know, I remember like a couple of years ago, I saw we were I was out with uh, on vacation with my family, and we were on the beach, and uh, we just saw some dolphins start swimming like really, really close to us. I was like, man, that is gorgeous. And then I'm, and then this John Mayer, the rest of the rest of the day in my head, this John Mayer song <laughs> John is in Mayer's my head soundtrack. about you know living life with your own eyes and and not not wasting it, taking pictures of everything, but taking it in. Um, so we, thanks, John Mayer, I guess, whatever. We got to bring John. Okay, I will put this against John Mayer. He is a huge Miley Cyrus fan. Did you know that? Did not. And he said one of the top 10 greatest pop songs ever written is The Climb by wow. Miley Cyrus. So everything awesome that John Mayer has ever done, Ooh. here's proof that he's human. All right, to, I hate him again. That's right. That's for you. That's so you can get back on the <laughs> right. not liking John Mayer train. All right, you're going to need another album to, to overcome that, John. We will uh, not be talking about Miley Cyrus, The Climb, on any of the great song podcasts. Yeah, I don't see that making it. Um, it's not going to make I, the list. Uh, wow, that's really disappointing. Yeah. That's like... It's um, on a downer moment. That's like, you know, finding out that... Um, Never mind. I'm not even going to go there. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, I think that's going to do it for this episode of the Great Song Podcast. Where wherever you're listening, iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, Xanax, uh, <laughs> Zarnak, <laughs> Zarnak, whatever. Uh, thanks for tuning in. We appreciate your your free time uh, spending it spending it with us. And uh, we'll see you next week with another episode of the Great Song Podcast. I'm Rob. I'm JP. Go listen to some music. Okay. We told you we were finished. But JP just off the off the uh, off the air said something that that shook me so much uh, that I, I he's got I got to get him to talk about it on the podcast. So yeah, we JP, just started talking after just about and I don't know how I failed to mention this, but uh, when I first moved here to Nashville, the first show I went to see um, was a John Mayer show at the Bridgestone, and it was after a very controversial ad that he had um, had just been published about him and had some racial undertones that were pretty pretty heavy. 
Um, and I saw him play. The, he addressed the crowd um, before slow dancing in a burning room, and he said, I don't really know how to, how to talk about this. He's like, so I'm just going to talk and cry with my guitar. And he literally cried on stage and played the most beautiful guitar solo I've ever heard. And it was so powerful. I can only think of one other guitar moment that uh, compared to it. And that was Tate Bohr playing the cigarette solo with King's X um, the first time I saw them. And it was completely different dynamic. That was just the power (laughs) of the solo. But the emotion behind the John Mayer solo and Slow Dancing in a Burning Room after that um was very captivating and uh he shows he does have a soul (laughs) that was and that was kind of you know it 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 ties into what we've been talking about because that was sort of an emotional uh rock bottom for him like that was a moment where he realized like maybe i need to consider some things about myself here you know some of the what he had talked about in that interview um you know a, a lot of his uh younger years he had a reputation for just, you know, being very self-centered and, and, um, not necessarily arrogant, but like just kind of a jerk, like, you know, whatever. Um, and, and now he's come back around to a pretty mature, it seems like place. I think he's sort of stopped. I don't know if he stopped drinking altogether, or I, I know he stopped like the sort of party lifestyle and whatever. And he's, it just seems in even in his music that he's become more reflective and a little bit more mature and like, but th- that you were there in the room for that moment. Cause I've seen it on YouTube. Oh yeah. It's awesome. I, I was there and I'll tell you that it was neat to see him do that. And then this past year I saw him do this search for everything tour where they do all the different parts with the trio and the different sets. And it's neat to see such a, a dark kind of place in his life that was so emotional and powerful. And then to see like a brighter side, yeah. even the, as we talked about with the colors, even the lighting was brighter and the vibe mm. in the room was just more chipper. You know, mm. it was more, it just felt good. It leaves you feeling good. Whereas the other one was powerful and emotional and moved you to tears. But this past show was so uplifting and yeah. and you left smiling and I took I went with multiple friends and we had such a great time huh. and so just the the dynamic shift in that you know, was pretty pretty interesting to see so, so good for you John Mayer yeah I good think, job John Mayer I think maybe you've done some growing that's so, nice you've done some changing you've done some changing how about Kaboom. it it's almost like the song had something to do with what the heck we were talking about I'm gonna ask you one more question before we go because it made me think of it uh, and you may not have another answer because you already gave two uh, but live uh, concert moments that you just went, wow, that was more than, that was amazing, that was technically proficient, that was beautiful, but like, I felt impacted by that moment. Do you have any more of those? Yeah, the, well, the Tate Bohr solo and Cigarettes with King's it, X. Listen, if, you, if you've never listened to King's X, Check go right now. What album to start with? Dogman. You think Dogman? Yes, okay. or Ear Candy, if you I, gotta go play. I started with Tapehead, and oh, then wow. I, worked, yeah. I worked both forwards and backwards from Tapehead. Okay. Uh, but Dogman, you can't go wrong Dog with Dogman. Dogman. It's gonna hit you in the face from yeah. the first note. Most underrated rock band of, of Probably. all time? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Th- they're one of those bands that you listen to that other rock bands go... I can't believe those guys were not the hugest band in the world. Sure. Like bands that are huge and well-respected go, man, King's X is the greatest I ever heard. To put it in perspective, we saw them with Dream Theater and Satch, which is a huge show. And I'm talking about the King's X moment. Yeah. So, but other high moments when actually when Portnoy caught the stick and hit right on. on We saw, we saw Dream Theater playing uh, and Dream Theater's like heavy progressive metal, you know, uh, some people would call it math rock, a lot of weird time signatures and, and just very, very, very intense. And, uh, 
And so they're playing in a strung together portion of some of their most creative, inventive, and difficult instrumental sections of different songs strung together in a medley. And um, literally the guitar player and the bass player are kicking a soccer ball back and forth on stage. And the drummer is throwing sticks back and forth to people in the balcony to his left uh, and catching them, continuing to play this intense moment. Um, Yeah, that was great. Uh, I remember actually from that same show, uh, there was a very, um, it was almost a, um, uh, a sacred feeling moment with Joe Satriani on stage. He was playing something very low and just had everybody in the palm of his hand, not because he was playing something blazing fast and amazing, but because he was playing something that was just so loaded down with, uh, with emotion. It had that same kind of moment that you're talking about where you, you know, you could have lost yourself in that moment and you almost had to shake yourself back out of it. Um, what's your so moment? Do you have one like that? That, that would be, that's, the, your, your I, that's the one moment? that came to mind when you were, when you were talking about that. Um, you know, I think, uh, the rest of my moments are all reserved for church. Most of the time I can remove myself from pop music pretty well, uh, and really just get invested in my, uh, moments of, of worship. I feel like that's the real thing. And I'll, and I'll, and I'll focus on that and I'll disconnect from the other stuff. Can I throw out one Satch moment that, Absolutely. that I have? Uh, my favorite Satch moment was actually not necessarily because of Satch. It's when we saw the G3 um, tour at the Ryman. Yeah. So it was him, uh, Ingve Malmsteen, and Steve Vai. Yeah. No offense to Ingve, but at the end, they I always do. I, I say great offense to Ingve. Okay. You're amazing, but come on, man. But, but why? So anyway, the three of them are playing, and they always would bring out special guests. Yeah. And they brought out Neil Sean. Yeah, they Who is like, you know, he's the, if you're in... He's like my high school girlfriend or whatever. You know, he's the one that that's the that showed up, and so that was a that was a really cool experience for me to have my favorite one of my favorites show up that with was, some of my other favorites. They came out. Did they do keep on rocking in the free? Keep world? on rocking in the free world. Yeah. yeah, it was them. And forgive me that I don't remember the fifth guy, but it was some Nashville a Nashville country chicken guy picker that played a telly, yeah. and it was like, why is he out there with them? And I'm like, that's why he's out there with them. <laughs> Sorry, I don't remember your in. name, sir. If you're listening, thanks for listening. Thanks for hanging out with Neil Sean and Satch, and it was really good. So. Okay, and thanks for thanks thanks to you for listening all the way through the end, and then coming and, back and coming back for more to the for the first ever PS yes. postscript edition of the Great Song Podcast. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next week. Go listen to some more music.